The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, we're back. Hey, guys, good morning again. Um, a couple of things real quick. So if you're new here, we're going through the uh, Psalm 23 as a series. Um, Matt started this off several weeks ago. Tyler preached last week. And then I'm here to kind of carry us through the last two verses of Psalm 23. So i uh, looking forward to doing that. But before we begin, um, let's pray real quick. And then we'll get started. God, we just thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. You certainly know we don't need more of me. We don't need more of us. We need more of you to speak to us. We pray that the, I would be faithful to what the text says, that we would be faithful to hearing it, and that we'd be faithful to seeking to apply that into our lives with your help. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, have you guys ever had a rivalry before? I, uh, I grew up in upstate New York. Most of you don't know where that is. That's just north of New York City. Everything north of New York City is considered upstate New York, so that's where I grew up. Um, in my high school gym class, there was one guy in particular that I had a rivalry with. So every sport we played, uh, we were always competing against each other with as much vigor as we could. And in upstate New York, we get a lot of snow. And so at some point, we have to come inside. We can't play outside anymore. And so the, uh, the gym was set up for floor hockey, which is literally what we lived for all year. We played floor hockey until we broke so many sticks, we literally couldn't play anymore. We had to transition to the next sport. That's how it kind of worked. So at the end of this one particular game, um, we were playing. The puck went into the corner, and, and my rival ran into the corner to get it. And in that corner was one of those doors that has one of those press bars, and it, and it went out to this back field that was incredibly remote behind our school, and there was just nothing back there. Well, he went into the corner and, um, to get the puck, and, and I took that running start from across the gym, and I just charged across the gym, and, and I, and I cross-checked him, which is A, illegal, but that's all right. I cross-checked him into the door, and he hit the door bar, the door opened, and he fell out into two feet of fresh snow we had. In his gym shorts, in his T-shirt, and he just laid there in the snow for a second. And I did what any of you would have done at that moment, and I, and I shut the door. <laughs> and I will tell you two things about that. One, it takes 15 minutes to walk around the school in two feet of snow, according to him, and your legs are very, very cold. He walked all around the school to get back in. And the other thing is, is your gym teacher will give you 200 push-ups for doing that. Um, and they are the best push-ups I've ever had to do. It was worth it. I'm convinced it was worth it. But I don't know where we create this category of rivalry. I don't know when it first starts, and I, and I don't know when that rivalry becomes more serious, right? It becomes a combatant. I don't know when a combatant becomes an enemy, and I don't know when our enemies go from small to something that's very, very large. Um, maybe it's when you're two, and that kid steals that sippy cup from you for the first time. Or maybe it's when you're nine, and that kid throws the elbow for the first time in that game you were playing. Or maybe, maybe your enemy's a bit more traditional, like my grandfather's faced in World War II. Or maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's, maybe it's what my uncle had to face in Katrina as a Coast Guard captain, having to retrieve the bodies of those floating in the aftermath before the alligators got them. That got real. That was tough. Or maybe your enemy is your own body, breaking down, not working as you intended it to. Or maybe it's depression that just won't leave. Or maybe it's even darker. Maybe it's someone who's hurt you or is hurting you. Or maybe it's loneliness or broken relationships or loved ones. Well, these last two verses of Psalm 23, I think, are for you. 
this is all about when we encounter that enemy. And I also think there's tremendous hope given in this section. So I'm going to read Psalm 23. I'm going to read it off the screen, and we're going to read this together, and then we're going to jump in, and I want to point out a number of things along the way. My goal is to give you hope and courage in the midst of our enemy. So here it is. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we've already covered the Lord is my shepherd. We've been through that part. We're at this last section here. And I think God points out a number of truths. And the reality is when we face enemies, it's not as exciting or as romantic as we think it is. In fact, our enemies are pretty scary most of the time. We feel powerless. We can feel the loss of control. And I think if we're really honest, we can give up hope sometimes. We begin to ask the questions, will the hurting continue in my life? Will that addiction come back? Will my joblessness continue? Will my body recover from the illness? And those are hard questions that we begin to ask ourselves. Well, verse 5, we begin to see three wonderful truths, and I want to walk them through really slowly so you guys can see them together. The first one is the words, two words, you prepare. We should have them up. There we go. You prepare. I want you to think about this. The first word is you, and so that's God. The wonderful thing about this is we begin to see a God that prepares. We don't have a friend that prepares. We don't have a spouse that prepares. We have God that prepares, and that should give us hope. The second part is he prepares. So God has gone ahead. He has made arrangements for exactly what we need. No detail is missed. Nothing is overlooked, and it's exactly right-sized. So not only is God there, but he's active. He's working actively in there. He's going ahead, and he's preparing. Psalm 139 says this, O Lord, listen, Carol, this is one of my favorite psalms. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You've scrutinized my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. When we look at our situation, the enemy we face without a view of God, it's not surprising that we become overwhelmed and discouraged. We calculate our suffering for the future in those moments. We try to figure out how will life be different. Despair sets in. Depression comes. And it all goes downhill from there. But I want you to remember something right now. Remember, we serve a God who has not only gone ahead of us, but has prepared good for us. He knows exactly what we need. And this is what's important. God is a God of the situation, not despite the situation. Does that make sense? When we look at our situation and we fail to look at God, it's not surprising that we become overwhelmed. Because our situations are large. We're not taking anything away from the enemy. We're simply forgetting who our God is in the midst of that. So he's prepared. So what is he preparing? And here's the wonderful next part of this. Are you ready for it? It's a table in the presence of my enemy. Now, I'll be really honest with you. This reads wrong. Do you see how it reads wrong? I don't like this verse. 
I don't like this verse at all. There's two problems I have. One is table, and second is presence of my enemy. Here's the reason why. When we are facing our enemy, the last thing we need is God to set up snack time in the midst of our trouble. But that's exactly what he's doing here. It's not even, I mean, I'm okay if we're running, and he whips out the granola bar out of his backpack while we're running and says, here, this will help you. He actually sets up a table, and it's in the presence of our enemy. Do you see that? That's a non sequitur right there. That is a problem for us. Shouldn't, we be, shouldn't he be preparing a trap door to get us out? Shouldn't he be preparing an army? What about all those lightning bolts? Where are those? This is not what we asked for. And it certainly is often not what we wanted. So what is the psalmist doing? Remember, this is David, King David, who is writing this psalm. I'm going to read you a sentence that I wrote very carefully here. And I want you guys to listen to it really careful. Because I think this is where some of the crux is for us when we're facing our enemy. Here it is. Being fed by God in the middle of our trials is more important than being removed from the circumstance. You want me to read that again? You can text me your angry thoughts after, but I'm going to read it one more time. Being fed by God in the middle of our trial is more important than being removed from our circumstances. This is not normal for us to feel or think. And frankly, we don't like what I just read. I don't like what I just read. But we typically want one thing in those moments. We want to get away from our enemies. We want relief. And I want to be really careful. That is good. We're not denying that good thing. And we should work with all of the power we have to remove ourselves from that. But additionally, we should help others remove themselves from hard circumstances. But that is not the most important thing because not all circumstances can, you can be removed from. And so at some point, we have to have something that sustains us beyond that. When Jesus was alive, the Romans were the leaders of present-day Israel and, frankly, most of the world. And there was a gentleman, I call him a gentleman, you may use the word dictator, uh, his name was Tiberius Caesar. A couple things about him. One, he believed he was God. Two, he had legions of armies that were in the process of taking over the known world. The other part of it was, if he needed more people in his army, guess what he did? He just simply enslaved you and made you fight on his behalf. There was constant rumblings of revolt in Israel at that time. When can we throw this off? What if we killed the local king who was working for Caesar and overtook the government again. Even some of Jesus' disciples would have come from a group of people that were working toward revolt. Many of Jesus' friends believed what the prophets have said of old, which said that someday a Savior is coming and that Savior will save you. And so they were excited. And Jesus comes along and they say, you're the Savior. And they got that part right. Here's the part they got wrong. You're going to save us from the Romans. I want to read you something that Jesus said. See if you can connect it to Psalm 23. You guys are smart. You'll do it. I know you will. Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Do you see what he did there? Same thing we got in Psalm 23. 
But Jesus, look at the Romans. Look at how they're taking over. Look at us enslaved. And Jesus says, I will feed you. And you will never hunger. What's interesting about this is that we get a sneak peek of some of this. So after Jesus died, there was two individuals who were walking. And they were sad that Jesus had died. They didn't realize he had risen again. And Jesus was walking with them, and they didn't know it. And here's what they said. You get a snippet of this one sentence, which I wanted to read to you guys. And they said this, but we were hoping that he, Jesus, was going to redeem Israel. They were sad. They said, we thought, we thought it was him, and we, we thought he was going to beat the Romans, and it didn't happen. They missed the feast that had been prepared for them because they were focused on their circumstances. The God we serve transcends our circumstances and feeds our souls in ways we often don't expect. I think that's really important to need. So what does this banquet look like? In moments of trial and hurt, we get hungry. It's not surprising. Our hearts long for things. Some of those things are good, and we want to encourage that. Some of them are not so good. And we, begin to, we can begin to reach for anything we believe that will satisfy the craving and hunger we have in our hearts. But here's what God promises. And I'm going to read you my second least favorite verse of the Bible. You're getting all my least favorite verses today. Um, he promises to give us more of himself. Do you hear that? I'm going to read Isaiah 43 too. This is my least favorite verse in the Bible. You guys have a least favorite verse? You should get one. I've got multiples. (laughs) Here we go. Isaiah 43. It says this. When you pass through the waters, here's what he's saying. Imagine walking into a river and it gets ankle deep. And then it gets knee deep. How are we doing? We're fine. Then it's waist deep and you begin to feel the flow. But the river keeps rising. And this is the concept. When you're walking through deep things, And it's beginning to get here, right? And you're afraid it's going to overwhelm you. He says this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Reads wrong, doesn't it? When I pass through the waters, I want you to take me out. And here God says, I will be with you. And then he doubles down on that and says, When you go through the fire, this is the things in life that hurt us. He says, don't be afraid, for I will be with you. See why it's my least favorite verse of the Bible? (laughs) It doesn't read the way I want it to. (laughs) But I think it reads better, which is good. In Matthew 5, we actually, Jesus actually celebrates this hunger. I used to think that someday if I grew up as a Christian and I was strong enough, I would not be hungry anymore. I would cease to feel and have no desire for anything, and I'd be happy. I'm not sure where that lies. It's probably some sort of weird version of Buddhism, to be honest, that I probably have deep down in my heart. But listen, in Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who are hunger. I'm sorry, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So not only is God saying it's okay, he's saying that is a good thing. But notice what he says at the end. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I think if we connect this back to what we learned in, in Psalm 23, as God puts this table out with the food he has prepared for us, he's saying, eat here. I know you're hungry. I'm giving you what you need to eat. And here's what I want to read this next part. Our ability to have deep, heart-filling satisfaction 
is not only possible in the midst of challenges and our enemies, but it's promised. I believe that God is saying here, I've designed you to be hungry, and I've designed to fill your hunger and be satisfied in me. Maybe you're hungering for relationships, or you're in a relationship, and you're fighting the enemy of loneliness, or coveting, or fear, or desire. God has prepared food for you to eat in the midst of those enemies. Feed the way God has designed. Don't look for food outside what he said. Does that make sense? We can go looking for food, and that's hard, especially if it doesn't satisfy us. There was this wonderful, horrible thing that was created, and I found this to be interesting. Um, wolves used to, uh, they, if you had sheep in the upper Midwest, they used to have a way of trying to get rid of them because they would eat the sheep. Um, and so what they did is they'd take sponges, and they'd cut them up, and they'd soak them in bacon grease, and they would leave them outside. Um, and the wolves would smell bacon, as would I probably, and, and they'd come in and they'd, and they'd eat the sponge, and the sponge would go into their stomach and it would expand. And, and it gave you the sensation of being full, but having zero nutritional value. And over time, these wolves would get weaker and weaker and weaker, even though they felt full. And they would ultimately starve to death, even with the sensation of having been filled. And I find sometimes when we eat outside of God, I feel like we're some of those wolves. We start with something, it may give us the sensation of full, but our lives are in fact beginning to weaken slowly over time. Maybe you're hungering for safety, protection, or certainty. Maybe you're hungering for control, and you need feeding in the way God has prepared you. Trust that more of God will satisfy the deepest hunger. And I think that's what God is trying to do here. I imagine in my own mind, Psalm 23 being a bit of this idea that, that Jesus is taking our face and saying, stop looking at your enemy. Look at me. Stop looking there. Look at me. I will feed you. And here's what's interesting. Um, sorry, I'm going to my timer back up. We have more than enough. All right. I'm going to move to the next part of the verse. You guys ready? All right. You guys probably did this this morning. Anyone anoint their head with oil this morning? <laughs> All right. If you did, it's probably a baking accident. Or you went to Jiffy Lube and things got out of control. But, but here's, what, here's what's happening here. And again, this is kind of a, an ancient text, so you're, you're, you're kind of trying to contextualize what is going on here. So just listen for a second. Um, in this concept of anointing head, David was king. And kings and royalty and special guests were given oil as a sign of honor and special position. So here in this next section, we're reminded of our identity. Did you catch that? It's not obvious there. But once we understand what David is trying to understand, he goes, wait a minute. I'm not a loser. I'm not wasted. I'm a special guest of the king of kings. And so here we go. We're reminded to look and believe the identity that God has given us. I think when name-calling begins, when our enemies begin to call us names, and it's very easy to forget, and if you listen quietly in your heart, you can hear those. I'm unwanted. You're a sinner. 
with no part of forgiveness, right? Just you are, you're a failure. It's incredibly effective when you only listen to the identity that your enemy gives you. Well, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a group of people in this city called Ephesus. It's part of the book of the Bible. You know it as Ephesians, maybe. And it was so important for him, for people to remember their identity, that in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he writes out 19 things that he says, this is your identity. I want you to remember this. This is who you are. And what's interesting is in the midst of your enemy, when you remember who you are, there's a tremendous amount of hope and there's a tremendous amount of promise that you get from that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read all 19. And we're going to go quick. I'm just going to read it. But as I read, think about it. Listen for a second and say, you know, that one's hard for me to believe. But ask God to help you believe this identity. Here we go. You ready? Ephesians 1. I'm just going to rattle them off. You guys are going to love this. 19. Here we go. Number one, faithful. It's deserving of trust. Two, blessed. Having a sacred nature. Three, chosen. An object of favor. Four, holy. Morally good. Five, loved. Having God's strong and constant affection. Blameless. Having your sins removed and not responsible for something that is bad. Predestined, chosen by God before we could choose him. Forgiven, not required to pay for an offense. Obtaining an inheritance, part of God's family, and promised receiving valuable benefits. Worshiper, expressing through word and song the goodness of God. Sealed, a royal mark that signifies authenticity. Isn't that a good one? I like sealed. Uh, God's possession, someone who is sought out and made his own. Wise, having knowledge or learning. 15, knowing God, having a special connection to God. 16, alive, having life, continuing to exist, not yet defeated. 17, near God, chosen by your creator. Fellow citizen, a person who legally belongs and has the right for to protection. That's a good one, too. I like that one. Last, 19, part of God's family. A child living with your father. Aren't those good? 19 in one chapter. I love how he piles them all in there. I've often thought, though, how stupid our enemy is, too. Think about this for a second. If that's who our identity is, and our God is, is the powerful God we just described. Think about this for a second. Wouldn't you love to go, wait till my dad finds out what's happening? <laughs> right? I had a chance to go to Africa, um, and it's, I, I had a chance, and, I, and there was, they were driving through the Serengeti one time, and, and there, was this, there, was a, there, was a, there was a male lion walking across the road. And A, it was the single largest animal, powerful animal I've ever seen. It's, they're incredibly powerful when you see them in real life. But the family of lions was right next to him. And there was no thought in my mind that I was going to run out, try to grab one of those little cubs, and drag it back in my car. Because that male lion, 600 pounds and six feet long, was going to destroy me. And I think if we kind of put that in context, that, that, that baby lion was part of the family. And that male lion would have protected the family because of that. And I, it just helps me think about this. Even when I'm in the midst going, when my God finds out about this, 
you're in big, big trouble because my God does care and I'm part of his family. Okay, and then, and then at the end of all this, David concludes something and he says this. He says, my cup overflows. Does he have enough? Trick question, does he have enough? No, he has more than enough. See the trick question there? He has more than enough. He says, I can't even, it's more than what I need. I'm still in the presence of my enemies. I'm sitting at this table and I'm dining and it's still more than enough than what I need. So here's the next part. I believe David begins to ask a question about separation next. So we're moving on to the next part of, this, of the verses here. And he says this. It says, surely goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life. Here's the question that he's asking. God, is there a scenario where I can be so far from you that you cannot or will not come get me? And when you find me, what will happen? Maybe you're someone who feels your enemies dragged you down a dark, dark hole and that no one knows where you are or where you've been. And it's so dark, you begin to ask, can I ever be found again? And worse than that, is anyone even looking for me? Ever been there? Or maybe it's your own actions or choices. You've wanted to do things your own way, and you've run as far from God as you can. Maybe you've raised your fist and said, God, we're done. We're through. I'm walking this way, and don't come get me. Maybe you've only been back to church recently. And you've been down that. Maybe it's been a day, a month. I meet people, they've been down it for decades. And typically what's down those dark roads is just more enemy. But look at this passage. First, the word pursue. Do you see it up there? Do you see the word pursue? A couple things. First of all, it's an active word. It's not a begrudging action. It's not a, okay, I'll go get you. It's not passive, and it's a full of actions from a God who loves to look for his lost sheep. One writer once called God the hound of heaven. Just a simple smell, and he's pursuing. And those hounds do not stop until they find it. God is saying, you can never outrun me. You can't be stolen from me or taken to a place where I cannot and will not move heaven and earth to find you. Here's one of the glorious truths of the Bible. We may choose to be done with God and run from him as far as we can. (laughs) We may raise our fists to heaven. Maybe we've rejected the identity that God has given. Remember those 19 things? You say, I don't want that. I know you gave me that, but I don't want that. Well, guess what? If you're his child, he'll never stop pursuing your heart. He'll never stop pursuing a whole and healthy relationship with you. I wonder sometimes, and this is a, a very much a Joshua side here, so bonus material, if you will. Um, I wonder sometimes if in our hearts during these moments we feel and hear this roar within us, right? There's this tumult within our souls in those moments. And, and it feels like the enemy, and I think that's probably true too. But I think what you're also potentially hearing, see a lot of qualifications, potentially hearing, I think you're hearing your God moving heaven and earth to pursue you. And it can be frightening when you hear that roar in your heart. (laughs) But I also think it can be comforting. 
All right, next part here. We've got to move quickly here. Goodness and love. So this next part is not just pursuing you, but what will happen when he finds you? Maybe you grew up, and when your father or your mother or some sort of authority found you, it certainly wasn't filled with goodness and love. And maybe right now your, your heart still cringes at the thought of being found. But I want to encourage you in something. Don't be frustrated with a heart that is still learning that God pursues you with goodness and love. He is willing and patient enough to draw your heart to himself. And here's what he says in Psalm 147, verse 3. Listen to this carefully. When he finds his hurt sheep, this is what he says, he heals the brokenhearted. So he deals with our emotions, our desires, what's going on on the inside, he heals that. And listen to this, he binds up their wounds. I put Band-Aids on some of my kids' wounds because they're kind of gross looking, right? I'm like, I don't want to see that Band-Aid. This is not what God's doing. Not they're going, whoa, that's, that's messed up. Let's get that out of the way. The binding here is a, is a binding of a physician that says, ah, this is the best way for this to heal. And so I think we've got to understand that we have a God who binds up those wounds. He never requires us to fix our heart issues or heal ourselves. He meets us in these broken places. Goodness and love await those who are pursued and found by God. The wonderful thing is that it's God's love. Notice that? It's God's love that follows us. You think you love yourself a lot? You've never met God's love then. He loves you more than you love yourself. And he loves you purely. And he loves you well. And I want you guys to remember that. When he finds you, whether you've run on your own or whether you have been forced down a hard road, he follows you with goodness and love. Last section here. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Real quick, um, we watched a movie the other night, actually several weeks ago, well outside my wife's genre. She's in the uh, Hallmark Channel only phase of life where you can predict the beginning, middle, and end of the movie. And so we were watching The Martian, um, and Matt Damon, I'd seen it before, Matt Damon was left on Mars, as you may know, I'm sorry if I'm ruining the film, I really, it's too late, I mean, this guy's, just close your ears, I don't care. Uh, and he left on Mars because uh, his, his other astronauts feared he was dead during a storm and they have to, they're forced to take off. And he spends hundreds of days on Mars trying to survive as they work to kind of come back and find him there. And and I kid you not, my wife paused the movie three times and looks me straight in the eyes and says, does this end well? <laughs> because if this doesn't, I can't handle it. I don't know if it was a Matt Damon comment or just a general show comment, but she says, this isn't going to, if this doesn't end well, I don't want to finish it. I kept saying, do you want me to tell you how it ends? And she said, no, but just make sure it doesn't, doesn't die. And I said, okay, fine. Well, this last verse is David's similar thought on this. He says, how will this end? We have dark valleys. We have enemies. Tell me how this will end. And God, where is God leading us? He's drawing us to himself to live with him forever. Do you see that? Dwell in his house forever. I want to read something very carefully and very slowly to you because I love ending this way. And we're going to end in just two seconds here. Revelation 21 says this. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. He's not going to hand you a tissue. He will wipe away your tears. You're tired of crying? There will be an end to that. And not only will it end, but your Savior 
who has walked with you here will do the wiping of those tears. There will no longer be any death. Tired of your body failing, tired of losing other people. This is the end of the story. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. We will dwell in the house of God forever. Brennan Manning wrote a book that I'm still reading for the second time called Ragamuffin Gospel. And there's a chapter in there called Victorious Limp. And I just want to read this last section and then then I'm going to pray and we'll conclude. He wrote and coined the term Victorious Limp. And I think it does a wonderful job of cramming both realities together. Victory that will be ours and the painful battle and scars that do leave a mark on our body. When Christ died, think about this for a second. He was beaten, stabbed, and nailed to the cross. And if you know Christianity, you know we just went through Easter. He rose again victoriously. But think about this for a second. He didn't lose his scars. He still had all of his scars. And those scars were dealt to him by his enemy. He kept his scars. They were proof of the fight and were used to spur others to faith. Look at my hands. They were proof of his love. If you're a follower of Christ, you will face enemies, and those enemies may leave you scarred. That's the reality. You're not going to be a model anymore. (laughs) The scars will ruin that career for you. There's no Christian models out there. In the spiritual sense, I'm sure there are in the physical sense. And they'll leave you scarred and limping. But that limp and those scars are no different than your Savior's. Limp well. Limp victoriously. Limp forward. Don't limp backwards. Limp forward. And let others see the Christ, see Christ in your limp. We are not victims. We're children of the King. And our limp and our scars are real. And our victory is real. If Jesus can keep his scars of his enemy and reign as king, as follower of Christ, we can as well. Don't just show your scars, but show your scars and show the Savior that met you in the middle, fed you, gave you an identity, pursued you, and healed your wounds. So here's my ask. Will you join me in the limp to glory. That's what, I'm, that's what Psalm 23 is offering. And I think that's a wonderful reality for both of those. All right, we're going to pray here together, guys. God, we just are amazed that you love to pursue us. And we love to know that there is no pile of rocks we pile on ourselves or that have been piled on us that you cannot remove find us and heal our hurts we thank you for knowing the end of our movie and knowing that it ends well with you I pray that you'd bless those here that we would limp gloriously victoriously together that we would serve each other where we can as the hands and feet of Christ to bind the wounds of those around us we would constantly be taking our eyes off of the situation, the real, and looking to you for the perspective that you have and the food that you've prepared for us. 
I pray that you'd bless the rest of our day together. In your name, amen.